yesterday. It was quite nice out, wasn't it? Tomorrow it's supposed to snow. So uh, I think if there's one, one promise that we do have is that life does come. <laughs> and uh, I'm, I'm excited to, to move towards Easter together. And I don't think anything represents spring more than Easter, this idea of birth and reemergence and all that amazing, amazing stuff. I'm looking forward to Easter with you. And as we enter into Lent today, I want to encourage you, we are going to be receiving communion. So if when you came in today, if you're participating with us, I want to encourage you, you can jump out right now if you want and grab one of those elements that are out there so you can participate with us at the end of the service. Um, really quick before I jump in. Uh, thank you so much. This is the first Sunday of our new church year, and uh, as you came in, you maybe saw on some walls out there, but we had elections last week for church, church board members, delegates to our district assembly and stuff, and so I want to thank you guys for participating in that. Make sure you take a look at what's out there on the walls, and, uh, and just make it a point to pray for those leaders. Um, I, I'm reminded all the time of the words of the Apostle Paul, because I guess I would be considered a, a leader too, that you know, anyone who clamors for leadership uh, is clamoring for an interesting situation. And, uh, and it is an interesting world and an interesting time that we live in. And so those board members really do need your prayer and your support, uh, particularly if they have to work with somebody like me. So, uh, but that was a really, that was a joke and hardly, like three people laughed. So that concerns me a little bit. But uh, be praying for them. So you ever wondered, you know, this whole idea of people giving up things for Lent, giving up things for Lent, have you ever wondered why we do that or even what Lent is? And I'll be honest with you, growing up, Lent was lost on me. I grew up Catholic, which is fairly liturgical and, and you know, formal, high church kind of stuff. And so Lent was always a conversation. But honestly, the only thing that I remember from Lent growing up is that we had to eat fish on Friday. It didn't matter if we went to church on Sunday, but we had to eat fish on Friday. And that was like to symbolize some kind of penance or sacrifice, which we liked fish. So I'm, I, I'm not sure how that all worked out. But uh, as I've grown, obviously my relationship with Jesus Christ Lent, uh, for me, has begun to symbolize and hold a much more prominent, important place in, in my heart. Uh, Lent is 40 days, not including Sundays, uh, from Ash Wednesday, which was this last Wednesday, all the way to the Saturday before Easter. And it's a time of preparation. It's a time of going deeper. It's a time of asking hard questions of ourselves, uh, intentional, personal reflection that prepares people's hearts and minds for Good Friday and for Resurrection Sunday, Easter. The three main things, honestly, that, that people usually focus on when it comes to Lent is prayer, uh, fasting, which is giving up something to spend that time and growing closer in your devotion to God, and giving. Those are three of the main things that people usually focus on during Lent. And this year is a part of our focus, this annual focus that we're in, uh, being one as a church. What does it look like for the body of Christ in a divided world to live as one? Uh, we're going to be going through Lent together, 140. One church, 40 days, and uh, each day beginning last Wednesday through Easter, uh, if you've noticed, there's a different person online every single day from our church who is uh, sharing with you a devotional, usually about four to six minutes, 
And uh, I appreciate those people stepping up. Sometimes it's easy to die from overexposure. And uh, you hear my voice all the time. I, I tune out my own voice if I hear it too much. So uh, it's good to hear the voice of, of other people sharing God's word and giving reflection to what we should be a part of. If you've not liked or followed the church on Facebook, I just want to encourage you to do that and share those posts as well. I think that helps uh, everybody. At the same time, I want to show you something on the screen. Um, I've asked our, our, some of the people in our worship ministry to put together uh, 40 different song uh, set list, I guess, a worship set list for Lent for us to go through together. And so you can actually, with your phone, scan that code on the screen right now. We'll leave it up there for a couple more minutes. Uh, so you might be able to do that. That's a Spotify playlist, and uh, that's been put together. And uh, for you to just engage musically uh, in worship with us. All that to say, we begin Lent this year on this Sunday with something called the Beatitudes. So the Beatitudes, and you saw them in that video, they're, they're this list of characteristics that at first blush seem contradictory. You're blessed if you're poor. You're blessed if you mourn, or even if you get towards the Blessed are those who are persecuted. I'm not exactly sure that's how we usually think of what it means to be blessed. Hashtag blessed. That's not usually what we think of. Um, I know it reveals some things, but I would say most people, including Christians, live their lives as though the opposite is true. We're blessed when we aren't mourning or hungry. In fact, if we wrote a list of what it looks like to be in our world today, it might sound more like, blessed are those who are so full that they're not hungry. That makes more sense, right? I mean, my fullness would mean I'm not hungry, so that's pretty blessed. Blessed are those who don't face persecution. You must be blessed. God must favor you because you've never been persecuted. Or blessed are those who escape poverty because then they'll really be satisfied. The culture Jesus spoke into really was not a whole lot different than ours. Uh, they struggled with wealth inequality. Uh, they struggled with an empire that was really, really easy to worship. Uh, they, they struggled with a desire for comfort at the expense of other people, which is why Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 5, referred to as the Sermon on the Mount, are so unsettling and subversive. Uh, the entire sermon that Jesus preaches in these chapters is unsettling for a reason, because it speaks into the way you and I settle, sometimes into the patterns of this world. It messes with that, which is why we're looking at these words of Jesus in this season of Lent, to take time to be unsettled. We need to take time as a church to be unsettled by the words of Jesus so we might be open to what God actually does desire for us. So there's one beatitude that I think is highly appropriate uh, to examine as we begin this. We don't have time to go through all of them today. We're going to go through another one next week before we move out of the Beatitudes. But uh, to set the stage for these 40 days and what Lent truly is, it's uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. You'll see it on the screen. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Some, some passages, some, some translations say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be satisfied. Satisfied. Now, that sounds really poetic, 
uh, kind of existential, sounds kind of deep, uh, but what does it mean? And why choose this beatitude? I, I choose this because it disrupts the patterns of our life. What do we hunger for? What do we hunger for? Hunger means I lack. That's exactly what hunger is. If you are hungry, it means there's something missing that you lack, that you want, or that you need. And so we seek to satisfy our hunger, right? But it's a cycle because as soon as you satisfy your hunger, the clock starts ticking until the next moment you're hungry again. And so you've got to satisfy that hunger again and again. I don't know how it works in your world, but in my life, hunger is not seen as a blessing. It's not a blessing in my life. If I'm hungry, I have a problem. That problem needs to be fixed. My hunger is a problem that needs to be fixed. How many of you have ever been hangry? Okay. My wife and I have lived in the same home for over 25 years. And she knows. She knows when I'm hungry. I get agitated. I get antsy. I start acting like a fourth grader. Um, she's like, we got to feed the beast. Okay, so she knows what's going on when I get hungry. My hunger is a problem to be fixed, usually through Swiss cake rolls or tacos or something like that. Okay, but that's, that's it. Hunger is a problem to be fixed. So let me ask you. Jesus is saying, here's what he's saying in this. There is a kind of hunger that you're actually blessed to have. It's not a problem. In fact, you need to nurture this hunger. You need to actively, aggressively nurture this hunger in your life for this. So it's, it's a hunger that you're blessed to have. It makes sense to say you're blessed when you're full, so you won't be hungry. That's how my brain works. But Jesus is saying, in essence, when you are unsatisfied regarding righteousness, that's a really good place to be. Because what it means is you're in a position now to be filled. If you hunger and thirst for rightness for righteousness in your life that's a really good hunger to have because that's the kind of hunger you're in a position to have filled to have satisfied so what do you hunger for what do you hunger for lent is a season to ask questions to let the things in our lives things maybe we cling to that keep our thoughts occupied, uh, to let go of things so we can catch a glimpse or maybe a vision of what God is truly forming us to be. There's this scene in Jesus' life that I think helps us as we enter into this journey of Lent together. Um, Jesus' public ministry did not start until he was 30. Until he was 30, and honestly, there's, there's not a whole lot we know about Jesus' life Prior to that moment, we, we know the, the Christmas narrative. We understand, you know, that, that whole situation. But pretty quickly after that, we don't know what goes on. Uh, there's one time he gets lost and his parents freak out a little bit, and then he scolds his parents, which wouldn't go down in my house. But uh, that's exactly what happens. And so then after that, we just don't know. We know that, that uh, he's from Nazareth. We know that uh, he went into the trades, okay, he, he became a carpenter. We know he probably, and most likely he did, study the Torah and other ancient religious texts with all the other Jewish kids in the village, the Jewish boys. And, and so that, that's what he did. He just grew up. That's what he did. 
And then one day he steps into what you and I see in Scripture. He shows up at the Jordan River. John the Baptist baptizes him. God makes an announcement, this is my son. Here is your long-awaited Messiah who's going to set my people free. He's going to save you. Here is your Savior to make them free. So, this is a big deal. This Messiah has shown up. He's got a job to do. He's got a task. There are people that are starting to look at him like, okay, we like this. We like this. So immediately, what does he do? He doesn't go on a preaching tour. He doesn't schedule venues and try to pack them out. He doesn't write a book. He doesn't, he doesn't do any miracles. He doesn't do any of the normal things. that we, He doesn't sit these guys down. Hey, guys, I need you guys to gather around. We're going to have a strategic planning session. And he doesn't unroll all of his ideas, his four vision initiatives that need to be tackled in the next five years. And, and he, doesn't, he doesn't do any of that stuff. Instead, he hoofs it to the desert for 40 days where he decides, I'm not going to eat anything. Totally normal. Okay, that's weird. Who does that? Well, evidently, Jesus does that. Okay, 40 days, listen closely. Jesus emptied himself and wrestled with hunger. Instead, he went into the wilderness for 40 days and he stopped eating. He emptied himself and made himself hungry. Now, I can't go through this whole passage. If you want to read it, it's the chapter before, Matthew chapter 4. But at the 40-day moment, he gets a visitor. It's the tempter who shows up. And uh, there are three temptations that are offered. The tempter says, hey, are you hungry? No, duh. 40 days, no food. Hey, man, you got all the power in the world. You should, you should be able to gratify yourself in any way you want. See the rocks there? Turn them into bread. Eat. Man, you deserve it. You deserve it. Second temptation. Hey, man, you're a pretty important person. You need to prove that. You need to show your power. You should show your power. Climb up to the top, jump down, and surely you can command angels to save you, all kinds of different amazing things. It'll be a really good show. We should sell tickets. The third temptation, hey, just come up on this mountain vista and take a look. See all of this? This is yours. If you'll just deny God. All of this power, all of this influence, all of this could be yours. Three temptations, comfort, power, self-elevation, all things that we may not, we may think jumping off of a tower is a temptation. That's not the temptation. It's what's at the root of that that is the temptation. It's a temptation that's normal for all of us. But the, the, the first temptation is the one that I think speaks to where we're at today. Are you hungry? You're God in the flesh, right? I mean, turn some of these rocks into bread and eat. I mean, you are the Savior, so flex a little, okay? <laughs> Let it fly. You could do anything you want. Have some bread. Turn this stuff into bread. Take what is yours. Now, of course, Jesus was physically hungry, but the temptation was not about food. It's not what it was about. Could we agree maybe that, that a general message that we hear and give into at times is that it is your right to satisfy 
your hunger in any way you want to, right? It is your right to satisfy your hunger in any way you want to, in any way you desire. We all want to be filled. We all want to be satisfied, satiated. We, we seek it out in so many ways. We're hungry to be noticed. So what do we do? To be seen. So we post. We check the post. We count the likes. We count the shares. Why does she get more? Why did people comment on his and not mine? What does it do? It leaves you hungrier. I'm hungrier now. I've got to do something more. We're hungry to have value, so what do we do? We, regret, we neglect our relationships for our work life. We put the hours in to show our value, but it creates poverty in other areas of our life when we do that. Or we're hungry to be loved, so we choose relationships, or we chase relationships, believing that relationship, if I could just have that relationship, that will give me everything that I need. But relationships end. They leave us hungrier than we were before. One thing after another, if I just get this, I'll arrive. If I just do that, I'll be satisfied. But it's a cycle. It's over and over and over. And Jesus models for us in the wilderness those 40 days something completely different. Completely different. At the beginning of his ministry, he makes it clear this definitive statement about the central question of humanity. What are you going to hunger for? When the buffet line is lined up in front of me for everything I could use to, to try to satisfy my appetite, what am I going to hunger for that will satisfy? What would Jesus' words be for people, us, who so easily get caught in this cycle of hunger and the more ways we try to satisfy it, the hungrier we get. I think Jesus' words for us would be, you need to hunger and nurture a hunger for righteousness. That's what Jesus would say to us. We need to nurture a hunger for righteousness, which sounds really, really special and holy, doesn't it? But what does that mean? What is it? What does righteousness mean? It sounds kind of judgy, right? Oh, we're just going to talk about righteousness. It's kind of how it feels a little bit. Honestly, all that righteousness is, is it means that there was something that is not right that has been made right. That is what righteousness is. There is something that was created with an original intention. It is not fulfilling its original intention. So it has now been made righteous. It's been made right. That's what righteousness is. Sometimes, again, like Bible translators use the word justice which has both a personal aspect to it, but it also has a social aspect to it. So first, let's look at the personal aspect of righteousness. Personal righteousness. Jesus says that if you really want to be satisfied, you do not get to that satisfaction by saying, you know, listen, nobody is perfect, right? We all sin. You have sinned, Pastor Rich. I have sinned in my life. Nobody's perfect. You sin, I sin. I'm certainly not as bad as other people. I mean, have you paid any attention to what is going on in the world today? Horrific things are being done by people. I'm not in that category. I get that. Spiritually, I'm good, right? In fact, all this talk about personal 
righteousness, it sounds kind of legalistic. I mean, ever since you've been here, Pastor Rich, you keep talking about like spiritual fruit and the things that we're supposed to be doing in our lives and the, the, our behavior and our character and our actions and our words. That sounds like you're being kind of legalistic. None of us are perfect, Pastor Rich. We're not supposed to judge. That feels a little bit like you're judging me. If we talk about those things, this is real life. This is real life. Here's what I can tell you. Unequivocally, I mean, for certain, that posture, if you assume that posture of, hey, you know, my spiritual life is my business, and you better back off and don't address those things and all that kind of different stuff. If that is your posture, you will live your life spiritually malnourished. I can 100% guarantee it. You will leave this place unfulfilled, unsatisfied. It is not an attitude of hunger. What I just described for you is an attitude of justification, of settling. And unfortunately, in those moments, when we do begin to kind of sense that we were lacking something, when a hunger arises because of spiritual unhealth, the temptation then becomes to satisfy or justify, to seek counterfeit ways to satisfy that hunger, where I don't have to address the things going on in my heart. I can deflect. How do you get satisfied? Is when you start to hunger for change, and you say, you know what, there are things in my life that are not right. I need to change. I need to change. Alcoholics Anonymous is one of the most profound human transformation programs ever created. Uh, is it perfect? No. But in their 12 steps of recovery, the very first step in Alcoholics Anonymous is this. We admitted we were powerless over alcohol and our lives had become unmanageable. Let me say it again. We admitted that we were powerless over alcohol and our lives had become unmanageable. Let me tell you a little bit what that sounds like. It sounds like the first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of God. Theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? Because you finally have admitted you're bankrupt. <laughs> because you finally admitted it's not in me. I can't change. I admit that I'm powerless over this thing and my life has become unmanageable. That's called hunger. That is hunger. And I can tell you what will happen when you have that kind of hunger. You will be satisfied because you're in a position to be satisfied. Not justifying it. Well, you know, this and this and this. No. When your hunger causes you to seek what truly satisfies it, that's when you will start to change. I've known several people, good friends, who've gone through AA and they're now sponsors. And one thing that is really, really interesting and hard to understand is when they meet somebody who says they want to quit drinking. When a sponsor or somebody from AA meets somebody that says that they want to quit drinking, and they meet that person, they start asking questions, there's a little bit of an evaluation that takes place, and then sometimes what you hear that sponsor or that person in AA say is, they're not ready. 
I mean, how do you say that about somebody who's losing their job or somebody whose family is falling apart or somebody who there's so much collateral damage going on in their lives and you're literally got the gall to say they're not ready to stop drinking? And they will. They'll hold the line. They'll say, no, they're not ready. They're not ready. They know something. They know something because they've been there. It's one thing to want to change because of the things going on in your life that you don't like. It's another thing to change because there's things going on in you you don't like. Are you following me? It's one thing to want to change because there's stuff that's taken place because of your actions and your decisions. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. If I go through this program, maybe some of these things will get fixed. No, if I go through this program, maybe I'll get fixed. That's called hunger. This over here is called fixing. This hunger is a good hunger. I want to be different. A life made right with God does not happen without hunger. Until you admit, I am powerless over this anger in my life. Or I'm powerless over this envy. Or why, why am I so powerless over this lust? in my life? Why am I powerless over these things? If you will let that hunger for personal righteousness drive you to be right with God, if you will cause and allow that to drive you, develop in you, God is more than sufficient to meet that. You will be satisfied because you're hungering after the right thing. We have people in this church who would testify to that fact that the day that everything changed for them was a day of raw, authentic hunger. Real hunger, where the desire to be right with God outweighed any excuse anymore. I don't care anymore. It's a hungry day, and I'm going to chase after God. That's a good hunger. You're blessed if this is your hunger, because God's more than prepared to meet you in that hunger in a way that no other thing could satisfy you. So, what do you hunger for? To be right with God? If you are, that is a really good place to be. This isn't just a hunger for personal righteousness, though, quickly. It's a hunger for social righteousness as well. There's a distinct reality that righteousness is not just personal, it's corporate. It's corporate. Uh, yes, we need to hunger and thirst that we would be made right with God, but we also need to hunger that the world would be made right with God too, restored to God. Lent speaks, the, the season of Lent speaks to not only our preparedness for God to do something in our lives, but also for God to do something amazing in this world. That's what Lent is about too. Now, I know I talk about books a lot, uh, but there is a book I read several years ago that will be worth your time. In fact, I saw somebody's picture on Facebook from this church this week who's on vacation reading this book. And I was like, yeah, all right. I'm going to keep talking about books. You're welcome. But here's the book. Here's the book, The Hole in Our Gospel. I've mentioned this book before. It's written by Richard Starnes. He's a former president uh, of World Vision, of World Vision. Now, in the book, he writes about his own personal transformation when he was asked to lead World Vision. Something happened in him when he was asked to lead that organization that changed. He changed. Okay? Now, he had already settled this personal righteousness thing. 
You don't become the president of a Christian organization like that if you are not a Christian. So he, he'd wrestled with the personal righteousness thing. He had settled in his heart. He had a hunger and thirst for righteousness personally. God had transformed his life. Amazing things had happened. But then all of a sudden he found himself in a hut, literally, in Africa. A few days after he said yes to being the president of World Vision. And everything changed. Everything changed for him. God used World Vision and its mission to make him hungry for social righteousness as well. He was unsatisfied because while he had the work of God in his heart, he recognized around him so many things that were not made right. Made right. There's a stat in, uh, in chapter 9 that he references, and he says this, I think it represents something that stirs hunger for righteousness, for rightness. He said, more than 26,500 children, more than 26,500 children died yesterday of preventable causes related to their poverty. And it will happen again today and tomorrow and the day after that. And the premise of the book the whole in our gospel is that we've spent a lot of time in the church in North America, the evangelical church, spent a lot of time chasing what God can do for me. What can the church do for me? We've chased personalities, we've chased programs, we've chased lights, we've chased anything and everything we can imagine. We spend a lot of time in the Church of Jesus Christ in North America focusing on ourselves, personal righteousness. What's God going to do for me today? A lot of times at the expense of social righteousness and the fact that you and I have been invited into an incredible mission. We've not focused much on what it means to bring heaven to bear on earth. Social righteousness. If you spend any time reading the words of Jesus, you'll find that he's pretty passionate about both. About both. If you're not sure about that, spend some time reading Matthew chapter 25 without feeling overwhelmingly convicted and hungry to see something different. He goes on, he writes this, it does not take billions of dollars to make a difference. The lack of clean water alone causes millions of needless child deaths each year. Yet, to bring clean water to one person costs $1 per year. One well, $12,500, 500 people, 25 years. It doesn't take billions of dollars. So soon you're going to start beginning to see fundraising pages pop up all over Facebook from people in our church who are running the Chicago Marathon. God bless them all. They're doing it for World Vision, seeking to provide clean water for people all over the world. Bringing rightness. Are you following me here? They're bringing rightness to ease suffering, to make something right that is not right. Are you hungry to see righteousness happen in this world? As hungry for it as you are for your own personal righteousness. 
Maybe this Lent, give up Starbucks and put that money aside to give to World Vision. I know them's fighting words, okay? Just get it three times a week instead of five. Who knows? Sponsor a child in Guatemala. You're going to hear more about those opportunities come this summer. Or take that money. Take that money and plan on providing for needs in the Ukraine. Or how easily we forget other things like Somalia. Somalia or Gary, Indiana. Or housing opportunities out of Valparaiso. Or the Portage Community Garden right across the street. Lent is a time to examine our own lives, yes. To let God foster a hunger in us to be right with him. But it is also a time to get his heart for the world as well. To allow hunger for righteousness in the world to rise up for the wrongs to be made right. And I just want to tell you, uh, when you live with and you allow that to be the hunger that drives you um, for both personal and social righteousness, or let's just say righteousness, how about that? For righteousness, you will find satisfaction. You will find yourself being so satisfied by being in the flow of what God is doing. We don't have to manufacture the flow of what God is doing. God's already doing a work. He just keeps inviting us to it, inviting us to it. You'll be blessed because that hunger leads to real life. And Jesus said he came to give us life, life in its fullest. That's real life. Real life is that personal righteousness. So as we prepare to begin Lent together with communion, I just want to bring this to a point. What is it that you're hungry for? What do you hunger for? Many years ago, there's this uh, a faithful saint in my church that I pastored. They could tell that every time we would get to certain places in certain conversations that I would be nervous as her young pastor because I would start talking about some kind of black and white, cut and dry kind of stuff, like do you know Jesus kind of stuff and do you need to confess your sins kind of stuff. And every time those moments would come up, I'd get nervous because I'd feel like I was going to step on somebody's toes or I, you know, I spent my life not in church and with unchurched family and, and all kinds of different stuff. I mean, the second you said, hey, do you need to confess your sins? No, but you need to confess what it looks like to walk out the front door of the house. I mean, that, that was kind of, so I was taught and understood that people get really defensive when you ask spiritual questions of them. And she did me such a huge favor one day after a sermon. She came up to me and she said, Pastor Rich, we want you to ask us. How are we doing spiritually? That was a very freeing moment for me because, honestly, people, why did we walk through the door here today? I mean, did, did we walk in here to get something tickled so we'd feel pretty good when we left? I mean, if, that, if that's why, I mean, I don't know if I can manufacture that for you, but what I can do is be faithful to that question. How are you doing spiritually? How are you? Now, how's the church? How, you know, how is the world? How, how are you? Do you have a hunger for something in you to be made right? How are you doing spiritually?
The Beatitudes says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Jesus was hungry. His first official act of ministry was to fast for 40 days. He made himself hungry. Why? Because that's honestly just the paradigm of his entire life. A hunger for your righteousness and a hunger for my righteousness and a hunger for the world to be made right. It was, he was hungry enough that he gave himself up for it. He was willing to die for that righteousness. So as you prepare to receive communion today at the beginning of Lent, can we just use this 40 days or so to confess that we need God to stir in us a new hunger? Not justify our actions, justify our behavior, justify ourselves. We need a new hunger. We need him to plant a new hunger in our hearts, to re-examine our hungers, that which we hunger for, and to nurture a hunger for the things of God personally and in the world. So can I offer this prayer of thanksgiving as you prepare the elements? I want to encourage you to prepare the bread. Let me read this for you. Jesus, the bread of life and the cup of salvation, you once again renew the invitation to eat at your table. You desire to eliminate the hunger and thirst of our souls. You satisfy us in ways that we cannot understand, but we so desperately need. Through your faithfulness, we give you thanks. God, in whom we believe, with the same graciousness, you provide the bread of heaven to feed your church. You've invited us into a relationship with you, not only in this life, but in life eternal. For your generosity, we give you thanks. And Holy Spirit, our comforter and our corrector, you gather us together so that we may know God's word is true. You teach us to see our sin and receive our Savior. For your intercession, we give you thanks. And as we enter into communion, transform this simple loaf and common cup into that which satisfies. Amen. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. He gave it to his disciples and said, Eat, and whenever you do, be reminded of my body, which was broken for you. And so we eat. In the same way, he took the cup, gave it to his disciples and said, drink, and whenever you do, be reminded of my blood which was spilled to form a new covenant with you. And so we drink. Father, thank you so much for your love for us. Thank you for modeling for us rightness, righteousness, and help us to have a new hunger in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Before you leave today, uh, just a couple things really quick. The first is 
Well, just one thing. How about that? Uh, last week, we talked about the fact that uh, we made some shifts and, and different things going on and the opportunity we had to interview somebody to, for a new worship director position that we have in our church. Zach, who was leading this morning, is going to be giving full time to youth. Uh, he'll still be up here on the platform helping and, and different things like that. But I am pleased to announce to you that uh, Hannah Ahrens has accepted the position to be the part-time worship director. Yeah, yeah. Um, some of you have met Hannah. Hannah's been on this platform before. There's one guy in particular in this building who knows Hannah really, really well, her fiancé, Adam, Patter Adam Patterson. And uh, we're so grateful for her involvement so far in the worship ministry. She is uh, currently an admissions counselor at Olivet Nazarene University. And uh, she has a history of worship leading, and she's been uh, trained at all of that, and, and uh, we look forward to having her join us on April 3rd. But uh, as soon as you get an opportunity, make sure you, you shake her hand, uh, smile, see if you can compete in the smile category uh, with her. But uh, we're just excited because God's opened up these new avenues for us as a church, just to continue to grow closer to him. And I uh, want to thank you for your prayers in that. Be praying for her as well as she wraps up one chapter and uh, walks into a new one. So, all right. Hey, let's stand. Let me pray for you as we leave. Father, again, we thank you for your love and grace for us. And um, as, as much as is in us that knows how, we give ourselves over to you. We allow you, Father, to continue to mold and shape us into the people that you need us to be. Help us, Father, this week to find one person we can just express your love to. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being here today.